The events of Monday the 11th of February this year intrigued me greatly. I don't know if you can call back to just over a month and a half ago. It was the day that Pope Benedict XVI announced his resignation and retirement. He said that he would see out uh, his role in office until the end of the month and then would step down and retire. This posed huge questions for the Roman Catholic Church. Nothing like this had happened in 600 years. And here they were trying to determine what do we do with a new pope, but what do we do with a living one? How are we going to address each of them? What authority will they have? How is this going to work? There was no real way of knowing how it was going to unfold. And it took the Vatican itself a few days to to work it out as to to how it was going to work. You see, the Roman Catholic Church has room for only one pope. There cannot be two. There is one sole authority figure in the church. And in our studies in John's Gospel, we have been introduced week by week to the real Jesus, the only one Jesus Christ. Christoph said last week that we've jumped over a few chapters. You can find those uh, from a sermon series preached uh, back in about 2007 by going onto the website and uh, listening to, to sermons there. If you look in the John's Gospel section, you'll see the, the missing chapters that we're jumping over. But today we find ourselves halfway through chapter 18. And this section looks at Jesus before Pilate. The moment that we recognize in Holy Week as Jesus approaches that moment that he came for. And in all of that we read of the Easter story, we must remember this was the purpose for Jesus' coming. This was always going to happen. It was what had to happen so that you and I could know forgiveness of sins and a relationship with Jesus Christ, a risen Savior. This section in John's Gospel is interesting because it's a a leader who goes backwards and forwards. One minute he's in his own chambers with Jesus, questioning him. Next minute he goes out to consult with the crowd. And so we have an in and out moment with Pilate coming in and out to the crowd and to Jesus. But let me tell you a little bit about Pilate to start us off. Pilate was the Roman governor in Jerusalem. It was his job to ensure that the law of Rome was met and fulfilled in this province of Judea. He became the governor there in AD 26. Roman history tells us something interesting that I think we need to know or remember as we come to this passage. Pilate showed unchanging contempt for the Jewish people. Pilate hated them. Similarly, the Jews hated Pilate and everything that he stood for. The history books say that when the mood seized him, he was liable to order brutal acts of suppression, and he was eventually called back to Rome in AD 35. So don't for one minute think that this is a show trial set up between the Jews and the Romans. This wasn't some great uh, collaboration between these two authorities to get Jesus off the scene. Here you have the Jewish leaders coming to Pilate because Pilate is the only one who can deliver what they want. But it is a big step for the Jewish leaders. They hate 
everything about Rome. It is Rome that is keeping them down from being a free people. But now in this end game that they have inside of the destruction of Jesus Christ, Pilate is the only one who can help them. But there's an irony in here. I don't know if you noticed it right at the very beginning of our reading. The Jews can't even enter the palace because, because it's the day before Passover. They cannot be unclean in Gentile uh, quarters. So they remain outside and they send Jesus in to Pilate. They need Pilate, but because of their own religious ways, they cannot go anywhere near him to get this act finished off. Pilate, however, isn't going to make this an easy road for the Jews. Pilate wants to teach them a lesson as well in this. He just doesn't bow to their commands uh, at the start of this passage. He doesn't just say, that's okay, boys, let's, let's do what you want, let's execute him. No, for Pilate, he's trying to teach the Jews that they don't have the sole authority here and that he's going to take his time and do another trial, as it were, with Jesus so that he can get to the bottom of what's happening. So whenever they come, Pilate seems uninterested. Pilate says, look, go and sort it out yourself, boys. Go and, go and do it your way. There's one problem. These guys are determined to kill Jesus, and they cannot do that. They knew that if Jesus was brought before the Romans and they crucified him, this was seen as a curse on the person who was being crucified. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. What better way to get rid of this Messiah mentality that, that the people saw in Jesus? Prove once and for all that he was accursed by God simply because he would be hung on a tree. This was perfect for the Jews to put down any following rebellion that might happen from the followers of Jesus Christ. So Pilate is the only one who can do it. So what begins is a very public and a very private affair. Because this is leading to crucifixion, Pilate wants to do this right. So he starts his questioning, and there's a number of questions and one statement in all of this discourse. Pilate asks a couple of things. First of all, are you the king of the Jews? Secondly, he asks Jesus about Pilate himself, am I a Jew? Then Pilate asks Jesus, what is it you have done? And then Pilate comes to the grand conclusion, you are a king. And then with a little bit of language that Jesus uses near the end, Pilate comes back and says, what is truth? If you thought about those questions as Pilate was asking them, and if Jesus was to give a a great sermon in response to them. He would have converted Pilate with no end. Here you have Pilate asking the right questions of the right man. But Jesus knows what is ahead. He knows that his time is coming. He knows that the time has now come for him to be offered up as the salvation for the world. 
It's a fascinating conversation at the end there of chapter 18. Because it appears that the conversation is being controlled by Jesus. Whenever you read his responses, it sounds like Jesus is the calm one. He knows exactly what is going on. It almost feels as if Pilate is being brought along for the journey. But the whole conversation centers around the kingship of Jesus Christ. Are you the king of the Jews? And then Pilate goes, aha, you are the king of the Jews. And then Pilate asks, well, what is the truth? You see, the Romans allowed the Jews to have a king. But a king who was going to be loyal to Rome. So it was a puppet king. They were allowed to have their leaders to keep the Jews happy. But their king had to be loyal to Rome and subservient to Rome. That's why Pilate is here as a governor. So Jesus didn't pose any political threat on the outside of it all to the Roman authorities. So Pilate is quite willing to hear what Jesus has done. And he sincerely wants to get to the bottom of it. So this whole conversation of kingship comes in verse 36 as Jesus replies to a statement about his kingdom. A king must have a kingdom. Jesus says that his kingdom is not from this world. It is from another place. So this is it. Jesus has been challenged about being a king. He has confirmed his kingdom. And Pilate says, you are a king. Jesus goes on then to give a bit of an account of his purpose on earth. He says, yes, I am a king who has come, but for the purpose of testifying to the truth. Jesus came, as we have discovered throughout our journey in John's gospel, to ensure that we would know what is truth. And Pilate finishes his conversation with Jesus in this section by asking the question, all too often the rhetorical question that we all ask, what is truth? We've looked at this at different stages through the gospel. But in this story that we read, and as we go into chapter 19, we learn the truth that Jesus was the sacrifice and is the sacrifice for us. He came that we might live. He came that we may have life that goes beyond this life and into the next. An eternity that is prepared for us. Pilate doesn't want to wait around to learn what truth is, so he goes straight out to the crowd and says that he can find no basis for a charge against Jesus. And the crowd don't want to hear this, and so they shout all the louder to have another prisoner released in Jesus' place. And so it begins. At the start of chapter 19, Jesus is flogged. And the the soldiers who are doing the flogging taunt Jesus by calling him, in verse 3, the king of the Jews. And in verse 2, we read that they put that crown of thorns on his head and they put a purple robe on his shoulders to signify that he is a king. Of course, they're doing it so mockingly that it means absolutely nothing. And rather than having the shouts of Hosanna from a week before echoing in that courtyard, 
There is laughter and there is scoffing at what they see as a fake king. Even with this, Pilate finds no reason to punish Jesus any further. In verse 10, we we get a sense that Pilate is on Jesus' side by saying, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And this is the interesting little twist with the whole Pilate and Jesus conversation because Jesus says, Pilate, you think you have power and you think that it has been given to you by the authorities in Rome. Any power you have, dear Pilate, has been given and has been ordained by God in heaven for the purposes that he is unfolding in this moment. Jesus says, Pilate, you're not in control here. And if for a moment you think you are, you're fooling yourself. All of this is happening because it is what God has ordained. And so the scene moves quickly as Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd in what seems to be a final chance to release Jesus. But the Jews play their trump card. They've been saving this one for just this moment. And in verse 12, we hear them shout, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. This gets Pilate's attention. As it is today, so it was then. Political weight matters. And for Pilate, he is not willing to be called uh, an unfriend or or he's uh, no longer a friend of Caesar's. He wants to maintain his role in the political system. And so, in a simple political move, Pilate has to bow to the crowd's wishes to ensure his political career can continue and is safe. So Pilate presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. But the crowd shout back, we have no king but Caesar. And at this, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. But did you catch those words? The Jews, the children of Israel, say we have no king but Caesar. This is a huge fundamental shift in the thinking of the Jewish people. They despised and hated everything of Rome. But in this moment, they are willing to claim Caesar as their king. But it goes much deeper than just that outward social king. It goes much, much deeper than a simple call of allegiance. Bruce Milne, who who commented on this passage, said it represents nothing less than the rending of the sacred covenant with God. For the Jews, nothing was more important than the covenant of kingship. The covenant that God had brought in. Over the world in general, but in a special way over his chosen people, Israel. And Milne goes on to say that it was a conviction that no pervading power could weaken or eradicate, whether Persian, uh, Ptolemic, Syrian, Greek, or Roman. The Jews were secure in their conviction that they waited patiently on God's promised Messiah to come to one day liberate them and freedom and free them. But now on this day in chapter 19, they are rejecting not just Jesus as Messiah, but they are rejecting the fundamental belief that God was their king and they were settling for a king that suited them. It got them what they truly wanted. 
And here is the trait that we see in our humanity time and time again. We reject the kingship of Jesus Christ. We reject Jesus having authority over our lives and we settle for kings and authorities that please us rather than what scripture tells us. This is the truth that Jesus came to testify to, that God's way for us is greater than any other way. And we can reject the kingship of Jesus in two ways. Firstly, we can reject Jesus completely. We choose to have nothing to do with him. We ignore him. We do not recognize him as the son of God. And we just let him be. And we get on doing 100% what we want to do. The second way that we reject Jesus is in part. And this is the more cunning of the two ways. We don't reject Jesus completely. Rather, what we do, we claim to be his disciples and we say we follow him, but we hold aspects of our lives to be ruled by another king. So we don't give our all over to Jesus as he asks. The problem is this other king that we give ourselves over to. If Jesus isn't ruling us, then that other king is ourselves. We rule ourselves. We set ourselves up as king. Paul articulates this in Romans 7 verses 14 to 20. He admits there that he wants to do good, but the sin that influences his life keeps him falling into sin. He says, for I have, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Paul recognizes that there's this ongoing struggle in our lives and it's a struggle about who is going to be king. Who is going to sit on the throne of our lives and rule us completely? Jesus is the rightful king. But all too often we set ourselves up as king. Perhaps we allow Jesus to be king of most parts of our lives. But when it comes to certain other parts, we cling on to our own crown in our workplace, we choose to be king. When it comes to our children's education, we choose to be king. When it comes to our possessions, we choose to wear that crown. In our moral thinking and reaction, we determine our own authority rather than God's. When it comes to our money, we are king and Christ has no place in it. Whenever we are wrong and we need to justify our wrong as right, we firmly entrench ourselves as king. In our future, we are king. And dare we even suggest that at times in our own salvation, we choose to be our king. When we choose to be king ourselves, we relegate Jesus to the position of a special advisor. Not the ruler, not the authority, but an advisor who just helps us along the way and we take that advice as we desire to. As, like Paul, we cannot allow the sin that influences us to put Jesus on any other seat but the throne in our lives. He is the rightful and good king. What 
in your life needs to be finally given over to King Jesus. I read out a list of eight or so things. Perhaps some of them resonate with you, but in all of our lives, what finally needs to be given over to King Jesus? Paul gives us hope at the end of Romans 7. He recognizes himself as a wretched man, and that's his own words. He calls himself a wretched man. And in verse 24 and 25 of Romans 7, he says, Who will rescue me from this body of death? He says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He recognizes that the rescue and the hope comes through Jesus Christ. It is the King who rescues us and shows us the way that is truth because it is from God. So as we finish, let's jump back 15 minutes ago to when we started. In Rome, there is just room for one authority. Benedict XVI is no longer entitled to the authority of the Vatican State. His fisherman's ring, a sign of authority, was smashed. In our lives, there can only be one king. It is either King Jesus, who is the only one who brings salvation, or it's ourselves, who just do things the way we want. A follower of Jesus needs to smash their desire for kingship and allow Jesus to be the only reigning king. So who is the one true king in your life who has the authority over every aspect of it? If it's not Jesus, then it's yourself. But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you do need to smash the crown you wear and allow Jesus to wear the crown of authority of his rule in everything you do in life. And here now we have a moment. We come to the table that is prepared. We come to a table that recognizes what Jesus has done for us. We recognize that he is the living, reigning authority, the true king over all. It's a feast of remembrance and celebration of what it costs to ensure that we do have a sovereign king. Let's pray. Our Father, as we, can turn, as we continue to journey to meet Jesus, help us to know in our hearts and in our minds who is truly reigning in our lives. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we get from Paul who says there is hope because the King himself is our hope. So as we search ourselves and know ourselves to see what ways there are within us, that we still cling to. Help us to give up our power, our sense of authority, and give it all to Jesus. Thank you that because Christ has died and rose again, because he is your living son, because he is the one who presents us before you, thank you that it is in you we trust. 
We trust you for the best way that you have for us, that you've promised us. We say thank you and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.